Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 8, pages 595 through 668. Here we go on this uh, crazy situation where we're all locked in and nowhere to go, so we may as well read the Grundrisse. Um, now, the main point of the last session that we did was uh, the idea to come up to pursue the idea uh, that circulation realizes value in the market while living labor creates value in production and that therefore capital is about the kind of unity that exists, which is obviously going to be a contradictory unity uh, between production and realization, uh, which is also involved then the unity between production and circulation. So this time we're going to look very much at uh, Marx's investigations into uh, the manner of circulation. And as happens with Marx, there are a lot of complications. Uh, The original or the initiating discussion is a bit all over the place. And he really only sort of uh, arrows in on what the main thesis is relatively late uh, in the passages here. So I want to go actually, uh, instead of uh, starting on 595, uh, I actually want to start on uh, page uh, 678. And on page 678, Marx talks about uh, the threefold character or mode of circulation. And I think this is an important thing to do because what it does is it tells us uh, some aspects of the circulation process which are going to be differentiated in, in Marx's understanding at the same time as from the perspective of the totality, they all coexist together and interfere with each other and run in run into each other. So the threefold character of uh, circulation uh, is this, uh, that the first form of circulation is uh, what he calls, what Marx calls the total process. And I'm now going to go to my uh, famous diagram here, which many of you work with and say the total process is the circulation that goes on uh, from, uh, get, get this the right way up, uh, from, from money capital uh, coming through uh, commodities and the purchase of commodities, going through production, going into the market and being realized as money. The money then gets distributed, but then collected together and comes back into uh, the money form. So this is the total process of circulation. And Marx is going to talk about that total process and, and argue that Uh, at each step or each moment in this process of circulation, capital gets, as he calls it, fixated 
so when it's in the money form, it can only do as money does. Uh, when uh, capital takes on the commodity form, it can only do as commodities do. When it becomes part of production, it can only do what production does. So in a sense, as it circulates, so it encounters these different moments and the character of the moment determines in effect what can be done with capital at that particular moment. And so Marx is kind of looking at the total circulation process and saying, we start with money capital, we go through all of this, and then we come back as money capital. So this is the, the total circulation process that he's looking at. And that is the first form of circulation that he's going to be looking at. And we'll come back and look at some of the details of that uh, very, very shortly. The second form is what he calls small-scale circulation uh, between capital and labor capacity. And here what Marx is doing is looking at the way that labor power circulates in this system and the way in which the laborer is positioned in a circulation process. And if we start at the point where we're looking at the reproduction of labor power, and therefore we're looking at the reproduction of the laborer. Uh, the laborer gets re reproduced and then takes uh, a use value, which is the power of uh, creating value into the market and sells that power to the capitalist. So the capitalist buys this. Now the laborer, in effect, is going to circulate. What, what happens is, there's a circulation process where the laborer moves into production and gives up the power of uh, creating value to the capitalist. Uh, in return for that, the laborer gets money. And then the money uh, is, comes around and is, can be used to purchase those commodities that keep the laborer alive. So there's a circulation process that the laborer is involved in which is very different from the circulation process uh, that we began with. Uh, and I think the, the, the different characters of the uh, a CMC circuit process, so that is commodity, money, commodity, in which the aim of that, that exchange structure is the exchange structure to buy the commodities that allow the laborer to live. So the, the fact that the laborer can reproduce their, their labor power at this point is, uh, if you like, the end point of that uh, exchange. And that exchange is an exchange of use values and therefore it is the qualitative sh shift from one use value to another that is important about the exchange. And the qualitative shift is that the laborer has the power to work and to labor and gives up that power in return for the commodities that allow the laborer to live. Now, these are different commodities. The power of labor uh, is one thing. The power of uh, the, or, or the commodities which allow the laborer to live is another. So it's an exchange. It's a commodity exchange. And, and, and money mediates that. So the wage is, in effect, a mediator of this commodity exchange, which takes you from the capacity to labor to get the commodities that allow the laborer 
uh, to reproduce and, and, and to live. So that's why we call it a, a CMC circuit. Now that's very, very different from an MCM circuit where you start with money and you end up with money. And it's, it's different because uh, if you ex exchange money for money, then there's no point in the exchange. So the use value is not significant. What is significant is the quantity. Uh, so that you go from a qualitative exchange of use values that the labor is working in to an, a, a circulation process, which is about creating more value uh, as you go through, that is earning, earning a profit. So that you end up with more money at the end of the day than you started out with. So these two circulation processes have different starting points and different end points. And, and so the, the, the circulation process of capital is the classic M, CM, uh, which MCM plus delta M, which is the profit and surplus value. That's, that's, a, that's the main circulation process that we began with looking at. But the small scale circulation process is this one where the laborer is moving uh, uh, around in this way. But there's a third uh, form of circulation, which is not really depicted on he here, except uh, incidentally. And this third form of circulation is what Marx calls large-scale circulation, which is actually really about the circulation of fixed capital. And as you will realize as you get to the, towards the end of this uh, chapter, Marx is you know, really getting involved very deeply into the question of fixed capital and what's going on uh, with fixed capital. Now, fixed capital does not circulate in the same way uh, that all other commodities circulate. Fixed capital uh, goes into production as a machine, for example, and it stays in production. It does not come out. So the circulation of fixed capital is going to be very different from the circulation of commodities and money the, this, of this sort, and it's going to be very different from the, the small-scale circulation the laborer is involved in. And the whole kind of question of the, the manner of circulation of fixed capital and it's not only fixed capital within production that's going on here, as you will see, uh, it starts to encompass things like uh, physical infrastructures, uh, houses, uh, canals, uh, all, all kinds of things of that kind. And the big question is, how does this kind of capital circulate uh, in relationship to this overall structure? And as we will see, there is a relationship to what is going on at the bottom here when we talk about the production uh, of, uh, uh, of space and place and urbanization and uh, the, the reconstruction of the, uh, the, the, of the environment into the built environment, that there is a, a certain flow of capital that goes into, into this, which is creating uh, the physical re preconditions for uh, uh, production and actually not only for production, but also uh, for circulation. So we have these three circulation processes, which he lays out on page 678, uh, of the process as a whole, the, the, the process of movement of, uh, of, uh, for the laborer, and then we have the problem of fixed capital, which is going to preoccupy us uh, as we go further. Now, I'm gonna sort of work backwards from this threefold uh, characterization because this threefold characterization really is central uh, to what this, this whole passage from uh, 595 to 695 is, is, is about. And this is what Marx is studying. Though at the beginning he does get diverted into a discussion of Malthus 
uh, and uh, Malthus's theory of overpopulation. And so we'll look at that in, in a minute. But that's really a, a diversion, a, a typical Marx diversion uh, from uh, uh, the, the sort of main story that he's that he's uh, investigating. So I want to start then with this this kind of question of the small scale circulation, which is taken up uh, on page 673 uh, and goes on for about four or five, four or five pages. So it's a fairly, a fairly brief uh, discussion, but um, it's, it, it's very dense and it's very difficult to understand exactly uh, what Marx uh, is, is, is really fully trying to, to, to do with it. Uh, as I suggested, the main argument is, is, is clear enough, which is that uh, the value of labor power uh, establishes the exchange value of the power to create value, and the capitalist buys that power of labor power and, and, and uses it in production to create uh, surplus value. Uh, in, and then basically in return for that, uh, as I've said, uh, the laborer gets the money and uh, they take the money and they go into, into the world of uh, the market where they act not no longer as laborers, but as, as buyers, uh, no longer as laborers, but as, as buyers uh, in, a, in a situation of, of buying and selling relationship, uh, which gets them the commodities that allows them to reproduce their life. So that's, that's clear enough as, to, as to, to what is going on. But Marx, uh, as usual, has a, a, a set of other kind of issues uh, at, at mind. Um, because what's happening here is we're looking, we're looking at uh, workers' consumption. And, and he, Marx is going to therefore kind of sort of start to say, well, what's the role of the workers as consumers uh, in this whole kind of process? And of course, they're in part, they're, they are involved in forming uh, the market and the like. Um, and, and, and so what he does is on 676, he starts to spell out uh, some of what's going on here. He says, in this circulation, it's a small-scale circulation, capital constantly expels itself as objectified labor in order to assimilate living labor power, its life's breath. Uh, now, as regards the workers' consumption, this reproduces one thing, namely, himself as living labor capacity. Because this, his reproduction, is itself a condition for capital, therefore, the worker's consumption also appears as the reproduction not of capital directly, but of the relations under which alone it is capital. That is, if laborers did not reproduce themselves in this kind of process, uh, then there would be no labor power for capital to, to, to hire. So, Marx continues, living labor capacity belongs just as much among capital's conditions of existence as do raw material and instrument. Thus, it reproduces itself doubly in its own form and in the worker's consumption, but only to the extent that it reproduces him as living labor capacity. Capital therefore calls this consumption productive consumption, productive not insofar as it reproduces the individual, but rather individuals as labor capacities. That is, capital is behind this circulation process, doesn't participate in it, but it becomes absolutely necessary that this circulation process through the body of the laborer, in effect, 
uh, should bring the laborer back into, in, in, into production. Uh, behind this, of course, lies the payment of wages. And so a little bit further on down this paragraph, he says, the payment of wages is an act of circulation which proceeds simultaneously with and alongside the act of production. So the payment of wages is necessary for the act of production to occur. Or, as Sismondi says, from this perspective, the worker consumes his wages unreproductively, but the capitalist consumes them productively, since he gets labor in the exchange, which reproduces the wages and more than the wages. This concerns capital itself, regarded merely as an object. But insofar as capital is a relation, and specifically a relation to living labor capacity, to that extent, workers' consumption reproduces this relation, that is, the class relation or capital reproduces itself doubly as value through purchase of labor as a possibility of beginning the realization process anew of acting as capital anew. So in other words, the renewal of this whole kind of circulation process, the major circulation process, is dependent upon the renewal of this process, the reproduction of labor power, uh, which is done through this payment of wages on the part of capital and then, then the use of those wages to consume commodities which are produced by capital, and then that allows the reproduction of the laborer to come back into the process. Uh, and this uh, then is summarized on the next page by saying this, capital pays wages, e.g. weekly. The worker takes his wages to the grocer, etc. The latter directly or intellect directly deposits them with the banker, and the following week, the manufacturer takes them from the banker again in order to distribute them among the same workers again, etc., and so forth. This, the same sum of money constantly circulates new portions of capital. The sum of money itself, however, does not determine the portions of capital which are thus circulated. If the money value of wages rises, then the circulating medium will increase, but the mass of the medium does not determine the rise. And then a little bit further on, he says, this circulation is a condition of the production process and thereby of the circulation process as well. So Marx is arguing that this circulation process that we're looking at is a circulation process which is actually about creating the preconditions for the continuation of capitalist production. And then he says, hence it is itself conditional upon capital passing through the various moments of its metamorphosis outside the production process. So workers' consumption then is, is, is part and parcel of a circulation process which is foundational for the continuation of, uh, uh, of capitalist uh, production. And the payment of wages is not just simply a payment of wages uh, to the capitalist, it's a payment of wages which return to the capitalist because uh, when you go to the grocer, the grocer is going to sell you capitalist commodities and, ca and, and so that money comes, comes back through uh, the, 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 the grand circulation process. So what Marx is looking at here is, is, the, is the circulation process of the reproduction of labor power as it is embedded in this grander process of circulation of, of everything. And in a, in a sense, what we see is that what looks like a certain autonomy on the part of the worker is not autonomous. It is in fact caught up in this circulation process in which capital has a key role uh, to play. So that, in a sense, 
uh, I think what Marx is doing is to say, look, uh, wages uh, are not just simply paid and, and while there's a certain autonomy for the worker when they go to the grocers and decide which commodities they're going to buy and all the rest of it, it is an illusion to think that this circulation process is outside the purview of the circulation process of capital in general. So this uh, circulation process, which Marx is looking at here, of small-scale circulation, uh, is something which is embedded within uh, this, the overall, overall process. So having said that, then let's look, let's look at how Marx earlier on has set up the uh, overall process. And here I'm going to um, sort of skip a little bit and then come back uh, to look very briefly uh, at, at Marx's, Marx's jousting with, uh, uh, with, with Malthus. Um, so, One of the things we started to look at then is, is uh, the, way, the way in which circulation uh, is going to be sort of set up in general in the way that I've already described. And he begins on this on the bottom of page uh, 601, where, where he's really quoting uh, from uh, uh, the Reverend Chalmers, who had uh, some quite interesting things to say, and Marx is often coming back to him. Um, and he put it, puts it this way, profit, says, says Chalmers, has the effect of attaching the service of the disposable population to other masters besides the mere landed proprietors, while their expenditure reaches higher than the necessaries of life. In this book, uh, Marx comments, Chalmers calls the whole circulation process the economic cycle. So what we're looking at is the economic cycle. The world of trade may be conceived to revolve in what we call an economic cycle, which accomplishes one revolution by business coming round again through its successive transactions to the point from which it set out. Its commencement may be dated from the point at which the capitalist has obtained those returns by which his capital is replaced to him. So what he's doing here is kind of saying, Chalmers saw the cycle and, 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 and actually starts to talk. Uh, about uh, uh, this cycle. But immediately what we see is that the production process, uh, which is, on a, if you like, embedded in this, in, in this circulation process, in this cycle, uh, is such that, that it, it um, is, is going to be caught up in, in, in how fast the circulation process can work. And the, what the circulation process must do is also to become involved in all sorts of uh, 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 aspects of the building of, a, of a, an alternative, building of a, infrastructures and the building of, uh, which we've already looked at in the case of the, the road. And so in the next section, uh, Mark starts to take up the kind of question of uh, the, 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 uh, the circulation process which coincides with the production process, depends not only on the longer or shorter labor time required to complete the article, for example, canal building, but also kind of segmented into uh, pieces, uh, 
where sometimes labor is active and sometimes it's not. Uh, and he says towards the bottom, the constancy of the production process here does not coincide with the continuity of the labor process. This is one moment of the difference. Secondly, the product generally requires a longer time to be completed, to be put into its finished state. This is the total duration of the production process, regardless of whether interruptions take place in the operations of labor or not. Thirdly, after the product is finished, it may be necessary for it to lie idle for some time during which it needs relatively little labor in order to be left in the care of natural processes. And he talks, he gives an example of uh, the maturing of, uh, of uh, wine. And fourthly, a longer time to be brought to market because destined for a more distant market. Fifthly, the shorter or longer period of the total return of a capital insofar as it is determined by the relation of fixed capital and circulating capital, which is something we're going to get to. Um, the total capital period of reproduction is determined by the total process, circulation included. Now, what he's saying here is that the labor process can be interrupted. Agriculture is a very good example of this. Uh, the production time of agriculture is, say, one year, uh, but the labor process is what it takes to sort of plow and plant and then you just disappear and then you come back and harvest and you may do something in between. So the time of the labor process is very short, but the production time is very long. So the circulation process of capital in general has to take account of the fact that the production time uh, has interruptions in it. Uh, and there are some forms of production, such as building canals or something like that, which take many years to complete. And there are others where there are these forms of uh, production that uh, have what Marx calls fallow periods. Uh, and, and, and this is the idea he has on 602, where he says, there are moments within certain production process where capital lies fallow and labor stands still. Now, if that's the case, it means that no value is being created during that time. Uh, value is only being created when living labor is being applied. And, 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 and the, so, so the living labor time, which is involved in the production of uh, wheat or something like that, is very different from the actual production time, which, like I said, involves the whole year. So you've got to take that into account. And then there are these other things like the maturing of wine or the maturing of uh, uh, something else and you know with cheeses and pasteurization and all of that so there's a certain amount of time uh, which is obviously obviously going also going to be taken up so the circulation process when you looked at from the standpoint of production and production as a moment of circulation has many different lengths and many different times and uh, there are, and capital is not fully employed in all that time and labor is not fully engaged across all of that time uh, so, he says, the difference of time required to complete the products of agriculture and other species of labor is the main cause of the great dependence of the agriculturalists. They cannot bring their commodities to market in less time than a year. For that whole period, they're obliged to borrow from the shoemaker, the tailor, and the smith. So, the turnover time of capital uh, is something which is going to depend on these fallow periods uh, as well. And, and this is, I think, uh, something that is, is, is very important to understand about the circulation process. 
So when we're, when we're talking about this circulation process, then we have to recognize that there are certain aspects of it where capital is going to be, and Marx uses this term, which is different from fixed, capital is going to be fixated. That is, it's going to be stuck in some kind of, uh, some particular form. And because it's stuck in that form, it cannot actually move and it cannot therefore really perform its role as capital, which is value in motion. The motion is, is, is blocked. In other words, you, you can see the point in agriculture, it's very easy to see uh, a vineyard, for example. Okay, uh, you do certain amount of work, uh, capital involved in the planting and everything is there, but there's no return on that capital till uh, the vineyard starts to actually produce the grapes, which can then be turned into the wine, and the wine has to mature. So you've got a whole series of temporalities there uh, where capital is not actually moving, it's fixated. And Marx's point here is that there are many production processes in which there is a certain fixation uh, of capital, and the fixation has to be taken into account when we're looking at the circulation process in general. So this is something he takes up on 602. We then get into a whole set of uh, discussions about Malthus uh, for reasons uh, and, uh, and Mill and, and all the rest of it. Um, and until Marx gets back to, uh, on page 618, uh, he comes back to start to look at circulation in general. So he's, he's done a piece of the circulation in general uh, earlier uh, that we've just looked at. And then there's this big jump uh, up to 618 where he says, okay, let's look. Uh, and, and actually the bottom of 618, he says, now back to our subject. And our subject is, of course, the general circulation of capital. Um, and he's here interested in two things. Uh, first, he's interested in circulation time, how much time it takes and what goes on in the circulation process and, and what the temporality is. But he's also going to be interested in the cost of circulation. Uh, and he broaches this on 619 when he kind of says, the costs of circulation break down into costs of movement, costs to bring the product to market, the labor time required to affect the transformation from one state to the other, all of which actually comes down to accounting operations and the time they cost, which is the foundation of a special technical money trade. The circulation of capital, he says at the bottom of 619, thus contains a relation to general circulation of which its own circulation forms a moment, while the latter likewise appears as posited by capital. Then, on 620, he says, the total production process of capital includes both the circulation process proper and the actual production process. So he's now saying, when I look at that whole circulation process in the graph, uh, production is just one moment within the overall circulation process. And the production, as we've seen, has different, different temporalities, and we have to take those into account. Uh, and, and we've also then also got to look at how, how labor time uh, is absorbed in, in the circulation process. Uh, and, and then it says on 620, the whole of the movement appears as unity of labor time and circulation time, as unity of production and circulation. This unity itself is motion, process. Capital appears as this unity in process, 
of production and circulation, a unity which can be regarded both as the totality of the process of its production, as well as the specific completion of one turnover of the capital, one movement returning into itself. Now, this is Marx's description of that diagram which I've been using. And, and, and it kind of basically says, you're going to have to go around this whole thing. And one of the immediate questions we ask is, how long does it take for money capital to go through all these processes, buying commodities, going through production, producing the commodities, taking them to market, distributing the, the money around? How long does it take to get back into uh, this moment of uh, original money capital. And, 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 that, and, and that turnover is what he calls the turnover time. That time is the turnover time. How long does it take you to get back to the original position? Um, and he, he says, as the subject predominant over the different phases of movement, as value sustaining and multiplying itself in it, as the subject of these metamorphoses, that is the movement from one moment to another, proceeding in a circular course, as a spiral, as an expanding circle. Again, because you're producing surplus value, because you're searching for profit, and profit is the money form of surplus value, this process is not going to be a cycle. It's going to be a spiral. And this is something which I've emphasized before, and here is Marx kind of saying, yes, it has to, this, this process I look at, I've depicted it in, in cyclical terms, but it's not a cycle, it's a spiral. As a spiral, an expanding circle, capital is circulating capital. So he's kind of saying the spiral form is the, is the circulation process. Circulating capital is therefore initially not a particular form of capital, but is rather capital itself. Now, Marx has defined capital as value in motion. What he's done here is to say, it's not as if capital is created in production and then capital goes off and does something. No, the proper conception is to say, capital is the process, is the motion, is the total circulation process. So circulating capital in this definition is capital itself. Uh, and, and, and therefore, is about, as he says, the unity of the production and the realization process. So the concept of capital here is that unity of production and circulation, and which is also about the unity of production and realization. But then he kind of says, capital, however, exists as a subject of circulation. Circulation as posited as its own life's course. But while capital thus, as the whole of circulation, is circulating capital, is the process of going from one phase into the other, it is at the same time, within each phase, posited in a specific aspect, restricted to a particular form, which is the negation of itself as a subject of the whole movement. Therefore, capital in each of its particular phases is a negation of itself as a subject of all of the various metamorphoses, not circulating capital, fixed capital, actually fixated capital. Now, what I think Marx is heading to here is, and this is a little, is to say this, that in, when, when capital 
is in its money form. It is fixated as money. And it may have difficulty moving. Okay? So, so while on the one hand you've got this notion of a process and you're thinking of it as a smooth process of continuous movement, in fact, it's not continuous at all. At each one of these moments, it, the, the metamorphosis from money into commodities may be blocked for some reason, or simply that it's, it's in money form. And in the same way that capital gets locked up uh, in a field in corn production with nothing going on and therefore is, is fixated, so we're going to find that this process of circulation, which we've depicted as a smooth process, uh, of, of, of circulation. It's not smooth at all. It's, it's caught in each one of these moments, it's likely to be fixated. And when it's fixated, it's negating the continuity of the process and therefore is, is, is behaving as not capital. Non-circulating capital, he says on bottom of 620. Fixed capital. Which is why the fixed capital starts to come into the story. But here he uses fixed capital, but then kind of says, well, no, I'm really talking about fixated capital. And I think it's worthwhile to differentiate between fixated capital and ask the question, how much of capital at any time in society is fixated in some form? Uh, the bank is supposed to have uh, a reserve, right? Which is fixated capital. It's money. It is, it is capital which is not being used. It's fixated. Uh, capital gets fixated uh, in commodities which are sitting on the shelf when they're not, be, they're not moving. So there's a lot of fixated capital around, that is, capital which is not functioning as circulating capital, but is fixated capital. And because it's fixated, it is not performing its role as capital. It is not doing what it should do, which is, i.e., be value in motion. In other words, the motion is stopped because there's all of this fixation uh, going on. So what I think what Marx is doing here is to say this process, which I'm looking at, which as a spiral, uh, and, and uh, the moments in it are moments of fixation. And, and one of the big problems for capital is to try to overcome uh, the fixation and to try to, to get stuff out quickly so that, for example, if there's a field and if I have a production system of uh, agriculture where I get one crop a year, then maybe if I'm in some part of the world where I can get two crops a year, then you know, I'm, I've, I've extracted capital from its fixated position and put it in motion. So he's, he's, he's trying to suggest, I think, that there is an imperative within capital to try to diminish the amount of fixated capital. And by diminishing the amount of fixated capital, then you can get more capital and you can create more surplus, uh, surplus value. And, and this, of course, is the sort of thing that does get capital into trouble. For example, uh, the reason why the state has to put reserve requirements on bankers is because bankers don't like to keep a lot of you know, capital fixated. Uh, and and they, they kind of look at it and they say, well, we've got money here, we should use it. And they keep on using it. And, and it means they have no reserves. And, and then somebody comes along and tries to draw money out of the bank and they have a hard time doing it. And then people have a bank run and they try, all try and draw money out of the bank and, and the money's not there. So the, you know, so, so the, the, the point here is, again, what Marx is, I think, pointing to is, is a, a, 
a, a tendency within the capitalist class, with capitalist producers, uh, to try to overcome uh, the question of the problem of uh, too much fixated capital relative to capital in motion. Um, and he says this on 621. As a subject moving through all phases, as the moving unity, the unity and process of circulation and production, capital is circulating capital. Capital, as restricted into any of these phases, as posited in its divisions, is fixated capital, tied down capital. As circulating capital, it fixates itself, and as fixated capital, it circulates. The distinction between circulating capital and fixed capital, Marx really said fixated capital, thus appears initially as a formal characteristic of capital, depending on whether it appears as the unity of the process or as one of its specific moments. The concept of dormant capital, capital lying fallow, can refer only to its barren existence in one of these aspects. And it is a condition of capital that part of it always lies fallow. You can't avoid having some of it fallow. This takes the visible form that a part of the national capital is always stuck in one of the phases through which capital has to move. And then he, this leads him into briefly mentioning the prospect that this can be a source of crisis. During crises, after the moment of panic, during the standstill of industry, money is immobilized in the hands of bankers, bill brokers, etc. And just as the stag cries out for fresh water, money cries out for a field of employment where it may be realized as capital. And he then says, much confusion in political economy has been caused by this. But the aspects of circulating and fixed are initially nothing more than capital itself posited in its two aspects, first as the unity of the process, then as a particular one of its phases itself in distinction to itself as unity, not as two particular kinds of capital, not capital of two particular kinds, but rather as different characteristic forms of the same capital. So Marx again wants to say, well, you know, the circulation process is about the unity of what is circulating and what is fixated. Uh, and then he introduces that capital as the unity of circulation and production is at the same time a division between them and a division whose aspects are separated in space and time. So we get some reference back to all the discussion about space and time, which we've been in uh, earlier. So what this means is that it's inevitably the case as he says on middle of 622, that one part of capital is tied down, another part is circulating. And what capitalists try to do is to animate the tied down part and get it circulating, but then the circulating part actually collapses into the fixated part at a certain point. Uh, and it is this difference between fluidity and, and fixity uh, that we begin to get into here. And uh, Marx is kind of saying that's an inevitable feature of the circulation process in general. Uh, and that therefore we'll always need some inventories, some stocks and so on. So always there's going to be part of the capital which is going to be, be fixated or fixed uh, and part of it is going to be in motion. Uh, and this puts limits on, on what capital can do. Uh, bottom of 622, he says, then again, since this limit arising out of the nature of the realization process itself is not fixed, 
but changes with circumstances, that is, the amount of fixity you need is, is going to be uh, shifting depending upon your, your, your techniques of uh, circulation. And since capital can approach its adequate character as that which circulates to a greater or lesser degree, since the decomposition into these two aspects in which the realization process appears at the same time as the devaluation process, that is, capital which is not moving is devalued capital. And you, what you need to do then, it, so he then says, this appears at the same time as the devaluation process, contradicts the tendency of capital towards maximum realization. It therefore invents contrivances to abbreviate the phase of fixity. And at the same time also, instead of the simultaneous coexistence of both states, they alternate. So he's talking here about, uh, again, about trying to, animate the flow, get the flow going, move it, and, and all the rest of it, and to reduce, therefore, uh, the fixity that exists. Now, uh, a good example of this uh, was the introduction of just-in-time production systems, uh, which came out of Japan in the 1970s, 1980s. And the point about this was that uh, if you had uh, large inventories, uh, then, then you've got a lot of fixated capital there. I mean, if, if, if for example, you had a massive stock of, uh, I don't know, metal or, or whatever it was, uh, uh, then, then that's fixated capital. And the just-in-time production systems said, well, okay, the way in which you set this up is you have a transport system and the, and the, and the component parts come into the factory, you have almost zero, zero inventory because the, product, the, the parts come in and then they're assembled in the, in the automobile uh, almost immediately. And the just-in-time system was a calculation of, of exactly how you got the flow so that you reduce the amount of fixated capital. Uh, if, you, if you didn't have that kind of uh, delivery system, uh, then you'd have to have large inventories of, uh, I don't know, wheels and steering wheels and tires and all that kind of thing. As it is, uh, the just-in-time system, which the Japanese came up with, took all of the component parts, set it up in such a way that there were no inventories and therefore overcome, overcame the fixated uh, part of uh, capital. And, and this is an overcoming of certain barriers which exist in the circulation process, uh, and, and Marx talks about uh, this on the bottom of 623, where he says uh, there are certain barriers to production based on capital, uh, and, uh, and there's the barriers to material production which, which come out of this fixation. Uh, and as we saw earlier, the money suspends the barriers of barter only by generalizing them, separating purchase and sale entirely, so we shall see that credit likewise suspends these barriers to the realization of capital only by raising them to their most general form. That is, again, if you've produced a commodity and you're selling it and, and uh, it's going to take you six weeks to sell it, uh, what you may do is you may go to uh, a bank and say, look, uh, uh, I've got all these items out there, it's going to take six weeks to sell, but if you lend me the money against those items, Right now, I can get my production system going. I can increase uh, the, the flow. Uh, so again, the credit system starts to come in here and plays a very constructive role in terms of the redu reduction of these barriers of fixation uh, because you can get fixation in the money form. You can get fixation in the, 
in the material form, in the commodity form, the, you know, in, in, in all these different forms. Um, so, so, so this is this is, if you like, uh, how the temporality uh, of this whole system works. And Marx uh, talks at length about uh, uh, all of this. Uh, uh, temporality, but he then turns on 624, 625, just saying, well, you know, circulation is not a costless uh, enterprise. In fact, uh, the circulation of capital uh, in, it entails uh, uh, costs and, 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 and labor time is going to be taken up within the circulation process of capital. Uh, and and uh, therefore, we're not only looking at the problems that attach to circulation time, as he's raised it up on 626, 627, uh, we're also having to deal with the, the question of, 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 of the costs. Uh, his point here uh, is this, that on 626, he says, the circulation of capital is the change of forms by means of which value passes through the different phases the time which this process lasts or, or costs to bring about belongs among the production costs of circulation and the division of labor of production based on exchange. So it's both time and cost, which is going to be involved in the circulation process, which is going to be a bit of a barrier, which has to be absorbed with the circulation of capital. And as far as the costs are concerned, by and large, Marx is going to say the costs are deductions out of surplus value, uh, they're, they're not, uh, and, and the labor employed is going to be paid by deductions out of surplus value rather than uh, saying the labor employed is going to create uh, more surplus value. So Marx's argument is value and surplus value cannot be created in circulation, uh, but you can, you can uh, appropriate and realize more value by being slicker and faster about it, uh, and, and that becomes therefore a very important part of what the history of capital is about, which is uh, regulating circulation time, accelerating circulation time, accelerating turnover times, and engaging in speed up, uh, and reducing uh, the fallow period, uh, and uh, the dead capital, and the fallow capital, and all, and all of that. Uh, so, here he does, uh, it says this on 627, the more rapid the circulation, the shorter the circulation time, the more often can the same capital repeat the production process. Hence, in a specific cycle of turnovers of capital, the sum of values created by it, hence surplus values as well, for it posits necessary labor always merely as labor necessary for surplus labor, that the sum of values created is directly proportional to the labor time and inversely proportional to the circulation time. That is, if you can accelerate the circulation and, and shorten turnover times, you can create a greater mass of surplus value. And, and, the, mass of, and the rate of surplus value will remain the same and the relationship between necessary and surplus value will remain the same. So that the, but, but the number of times you go through the process is going to be very dependent upon circulation time and turnover time. Um, so as he says on 628, uh, that there are certain limits of production which come out of, of this, this stuff of circulation time. And he says, this is the nature of capital, a production founded on capital. That circulation time becomes a determinant moment for labor time for the creation of value. The independence of labor time 
is thereby negated, and the production process is itself posited as determined by exchange. It is a necessary tendency of capitalism, says on 629, to strive to equate circulation time to zero, to suspend itself, since it is capital itself alone which posits circulation time as a determinate moment of production time. So there is therefore an attempt uh, to extend production time uh, or, or, or the, the, the creation of value in production time, but to reduce as far as possible circulation time. And this is the, something which is going to allow for faster realization of value. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, as he, as he, if the aim is, is sur surplus value, as he says on 630, the magnitude of the capital can be replaced by the velocity of turnover. And the velocity of turnover by the magnitude of capital. That is, if you, if you want more mass of capital, then one of the ways you can get it is by accelerating the turnover time. And if you accelerate the turnover time, you get more. I mean, the case of uh, double cropping, for example, if you crop, uh, have one crop a year, then you've only got this amount of massive value coming out of it. If you do two crops a year, uh, then you've got to double the mass of value. Uh, and circulation time, he says at the bottom of 630, only expresses the velocity of circulation. The velocity of circulation, only the barrier to circulation. Circulation without circulation time, i.e. the transition of capital from one phase to the next at the speed of thought, would be the maximum, i.e. the identity of the renewal of the production process with its termination. That is, to the degree that circulation time uh, puts a gap between production of value and realization of value. So you want that gap to be narrowed and therefore there is an impulsion and a tendency to try to reduce circulation time uh, to zero. Uh, because then there's an instantaneous uh, realization of, uh, of, of, of value. Um, so this is, a, this, is, this is part of what we start to, to, to see here. Uh, but it may be that the repetition of a non-value creating act can never be an act of value creation. And that is, by reducing the, the, the circulation time, we're not actually creating anything. What we're simply doing is eliminating the, de the deductions and, uh, of, uh, of this kind of process. Uh, which come out from uh, uh, the fact that a lot, of a lot of time is taken up in terms of circulation, which then leads him to start to discuss on 633 what he calls the full fray, the necessary costs of uh, inherent costs of production resting on capital. And, and, and he says on the bottom of 633 that to the degree that there has to be investment uh, in... Uh, circulation processes, then we have to understand what, what their role is in relationship to the total value production and circulation of value. Uh, uh, and that is what he calls by the full fray, the necessary costs of uh, production and the reduction of uh, these necessary costs 
is, is, is important because these are going to be reductions out of value and surplus value. And the, the, the less the reductions, the more surplus value there is for the, for the, for the initial capitalists. Um, and so he says on bottom of 633, insofar as they reduce these four fray, they add to production not by creating value, but by reducing the negation of created values. That is, if dead capital is negated capital, if fallow capital is negated, then, then, then uh, applying, uh, and, and if uh, costs are taken up uh, in, in, in circulation and labor is employed in circulation, therefore we get uh, uh, a uh, necessity to try to reduce those costs over time. Um, which leads into his general conclusion of, on 634, which is circulation time is of interest only in its relation as barrier negation to the production time of capital. This production time, however, is the time during which it appropriates alien labor, the alien labor time posited by it. To regard the time the capitalist spends in circulation as value creating time or even surplus value creating time is to fall into the greatest confusion. That is, because capital invests sometimes in uh, accelerating circulation time by uh, various strategies like creation of just-in-time uh, production systems or something of that kind, because it invests money in, in all of that, uh, doesn't mean that actually it's creating value. It's simply uh, affecting uh, the deductions which are going to put coming out of value. But he then goes a little bit further and, 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 and stretches something because the one form, as we've seen earlier, the one form of, of aspect of circulation which is crucial is transport. So he comes back to the question of transport on 635. He says, nothing is more common than to bring transport, etc., to the extent that they're connected with trade into the pure circulation costs. Insofar as trade brings a product to market, it gives it a new form. True, all it does is change the location, but the mode of the transformation does not concern us. It gives the product a new use value. And this holds right down to and including the retail grocer who weighs, measures, wraps the product and thus gives it a form for consumption. And the new use value costs labor time, is therefore at the same time exchange value. Bringing to market is part of the production process itself. The product is a commodity, is in circulation only when it is on the market. Now, there is some confusion here and, and, and some nicety of, you know, you know what is what. Um, yes, the transport, yeah, Marx insists, as, as he did earlier, and we've seen this earlier, that transport bringing the commodity to market is part of the production process of the commodity. And the commodity is not the commodity until it's on the retailer's shelf. Uh, but here he's going even as far as saying, well, when the grocer takes it and wraps it and puts something new on it, then it becomes a new commodity to some degree. So even that activity is part of value production. I, fi I find these distinctions you know, a little bit too... Uh, pick a Jung to really kind of be very concerned about. But Marx is stretching it quite a bit, I think, here, kind of saying, well, 
you know, the distinction between what's going on in circulation and what's going on in production is something which can be extended uh, even to the point where the grocer is being part of the production process. Um, so this is, if you like, uh, 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 one of the more important uh, aspects of what capital accumulation is about. And it does, I think, help to explain certain things like uh, the pressure to rationalize circulation processes and circulation times, uh, things like the creation of the just-in-time systems and the uh, uh, inventory reduction structures and, 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 and the like, and also the depletion of reserves to the point where you can become very vulnerable uh, because if there's any interruption in uh, the commodity flow and the value chain and that, and this is what we've been seeing just recently with uh, the interruption of some of the uh, parts makers in, in Wuhan, who you know, the parts don't get, get somewhere fast enough, uh, then, then the system becomes vulnerable because it has not got enough reserves in it. So uh, many of the production processes these days operate without any reserves whatsoever, which says, suggests that any interruption that can occur for the reasons of, uh, of any sorts of reasons, be it the virus or whatever, uh, uh, renders the system uh, vulnerable, which is very different from a system where there's plenty of reserves and, and inventories and backups. So it's not so, not so vulnerable if you've got the reserves. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a lot of inventories and reserves, uh, then you're, you've got a lot of dead capital lying around, fallow capital lying around, which is negated capital because it's not in motion. So this tension, if you like, between adequate reserves and, 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 and the risk uh, of uh, disruption, uh, which, by the way, gives labor a certain kind of power, because if you're, you're a key labor force making a part in, uh, in Mexico somewhere, if you go and strike in that particular factory and it's a crucial part, uh, going into uh, the creation of, uh, I, I don't know, some machine in, in factories in the United States, uh, then the, the failure of that part to arrive means the whole system is, 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 is down. So the system then becomes uh, value. But you can see how systems engineering and systems thinking and systems structures and so on uh, can evolve out of this. And Marx is, I think, right on the ball in, in the way of kind of saying, look, uh, if, if, if capital is, is value in motion, uh, the motion is one thing and we want to keep it in motion, but we've got all of these fixated states and, 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 and so on. Um, so this, this, is, uh, this is the, uh, the, the, the argument. And what, what Marx does on, for instance, on 637, he, he quotes uh, some, some, of the, some of the people, I forget who it is, I think it's Storch here, where he kind of says, the nation whose capital circulates with the proper speed so as, to, so as to return several times a year to him who set it into motion is in the same situation as the laborer of the happy climates who can raise three or four harvests in succession from the same soil in one year. Uh, and so... The, the, the means which are available for abbreviation and acceleration of circulation, Marx uh, uh, quotes these, uh, 
uh, this is kind of pretty well known in, in the political economy of the time. One, the separating out of a class of workers occupied exclusively with trade. Uh, that is, the, the commodity circulation becomes uh, a vehicle of, 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 of special uh, expertise. Uh, and it's not only expertise of capital, but expertise and expertise of the merchant capitalist, but it's also expertise of the labor force. Uh, so a, a class of workers that is skilled in that. Secondly, ease of transport. Three, currency, that is uh, availability, easy availability of money. And four, credit. Now, the credit, you can see how the credit system operates uh, in here and helps to smooth out uh, a lot of these differentials in, in turnover time. And so the credit system um, becomes uh, uh, critical uh, and, and, and uh, there's a tendency to look on credit system uh, as being parasitic, but I think you can see straight away that credit here plays a very important role in, in relationship to smoothing out turnover times and accelerating turnover times uh, in, where, where, where necessary. Um, so this then leads uh, into this argument uh, where uh, the question of uh, circulation uh, comes back in and he starts to generalize some of this before, uh, before going much further. On 638, for example, you look at the, uh, the middle paragraph. Circulation, he says, is not merely an external operation for capital. We've made that argument before that, that actually circulating capital is capital. It's not as if you know, some capital decides to circulate or doesn't decide to circulate. Uh, so capital circulation is crucial. Just as it only becomes capital through the production process, in that value immortalizes and increases itself through that process, so does it become retransformed into the pure form of value in which the traces of its becoming, as well as its specific presence in use values, have been extinguished. That is, the circulation time is about the transformation of the commodity into money, and when it comes to money, uh, it's just money, and you, you lose any trace of what kind of commodity it was producing, it's just, 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 just money. Uh, only through the first act of circulation, while, okay, while the repetition of this act, i.e. the life process of capitalism, is made possible only through the second act of circulation, which consists of the exchange of money for the conditions of production, forms the introduction to the act of production. Circulation, therefore, belongs within the concept of capital. Now, uh, here too, again, I think this is critical because there's often a tendency in the Marxist uh, canon to kind of say capital is essentially about production. But here, here's Marx saying, no, you can't understand capital without seeing it as a unity of production and circulation. And, and, and you have to think of capital as a total circulation process. And, and circulation is being used in two senses here, which can be a little bit confusing. Um, and the first sense is the circulation process as a whole within, within which production is itself in one moment in that circulation process of the, of the, uh, of the, 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 the diagram. Now, what that means, however, is that 
there is, however, a distinction between the, the production moment and what it does in the market. So there's a, the circulation in the market is, 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 is what the second meaning of circulation. So circulation sometimes refers to everything and sometimes just to that aspect, which is distinct from production, which is a circulation of the, of, uh, the commodity in the market and the transformation and the realization of the value in, monetary, in the monetary form. But Marx is kind of saying even that narrow definition of circulation, of circulation in the market and realization of value, that this belongs within the concept of capital. And that if we want to understand the concept of capital, it's the unity of production and circulation in that narrow sense. And it is, in fact, the movement that occurs within circulation in that much bigger sense that uh, we've been looking at through the diagram. Uh, and so what, what this means is that since the, the circulation process brings money back into production, uh, this means that the movement at the bottom of 638, the movement of the metamorphoses through which it must pass, that is from commodity to money and back into production, now appears as a condition of the production process itself, just as much as its result. That is, while the result of the production and circulation process is the, the, the realization of value in monetary form, including, including the profit, so, so, and that's the result, but that is then becomes a precondition for the next round. So again, it's, you know, it's a circular kind of process. Uh, capital in reality, therefore, he says, appears as a series of turnovers in a given period. It is no longer merely one turnover, one circulation, but rather the positing of turnovers, positing of the whole process. Its value positing, therefore, appears as conditioned, and value is capital only as self-immortalizing and self-multiplying value, one, qualitatively, so that it cannot renew the production phase without passing through the phase of circulation, quantitatively, in that the mass of values it posits depends on the number of its turnovers a given period. Three, in that circulation time appears in both respects as limiting principles, barrier to production time and vice versa. Capital is therefore essentially circulating capital. Now, by that he means the total circulation process that I depict in the diagram. While in the workshop of the production process, capital appears as proprietor and master, in respect of circulation, it appears as dependent and determined by social connections. Now, here's an interesting kind of fact. The circulation process as a whole is a unity of production and circulation. Within the production process, the capitalist exercises total control. They don't exercise total control in the circulation process. They are subject to the vagaries of the market. They're subject to the vagaries of uh, wants, needs, and desires. They are not in control. So this circulation process as a whole has two spheres, one of which is totally within the control of capital. It may not be totally, but you know what, 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 what I mean. Uh, and the other is, is really subject to to the anarchy of, of, of market exchange and the, and, 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 and the like. Uh, so, and, and in fact, uh, is there possibly subject to uh, the whims of consumer desires? And so when you take your product to market, 
consumer devices. But what Marx does is to kind of say, well, actually, in practice, you probably won't be subject to consumer desires. You'll move from your production process not to sell directly in the market. You'll sell it to an intermediary. In fact, you'll sell it to a merchant. Uh, this much is clear, he says on 639, that consumption need not enter into its circle directly. The actual circulation of capital, as we shall see later, is still circulation between dealers and dealers. The circulation between dealers and consumers, identical with the retail trade, is a second circle. So capitalists will market, the capitalist producers will market their product to a department store. And then the department store takes, you know, deals with uh, consumer desires and all the rest of it. So, the, so, so in a sense, uh, the, the hope of, uh, of a capitalist is to be able to uh, sell to a merchant and the merchant will take care of the, of the, of the merchanting. Uh, if they can't take care of the merchanting, you may borrow against uh, what's in the market and take care of it through a credit, uh, credit system. Um, but nevertheless, uh, as he says at the bottom uh, here, considering that the production process of capital, and then on to 640, is at the same time a technological process, production process absolutely, namely the process of the production of specific use values through specific labor, in short, in a manner determined by this aim itself, considering that the most fundamental of these production processes is that through which the body reproduces its necessary metabolism, creates necessaries of life in the physiological sense. Uh, here, again, it's interesting. There's a, there's a reference, in a way, to what is coming up uh, later on about this uh, circulation process uh, of the laborer. Uh, that uh, what, what Marx is kind of suggesting, that one of the things that the specific use values, which capitalist producers designed to do, uh, is to actually uh, engage in the bodily reproduction, uh, and the necessary metabolism, uh, and the creation of the necessities of life in the physiological sense uh, of, of, of the population in general, but of the laborer in particular. Uh, so that this process of circulation uh, encounters uh, at this other level something much more, much more general. Uh, it's about the bodily reproduction of the population, which is what that secondary, that, what that circulation process of, of labor power is also indicated. Um, now, this then leads Marx into the beginnings of a very, very important discussion, uh, which is about the distinction between fixed and circulating capital. And uh, here he goes in immediately to sort of talk about various ways in which this has been looked at um, uh, by, by the classical political economists, uh, we get a discussion on 645 of the difference between fixed capital and circulating capital uh, in the work of Ricardo. Uh, and this becomes a very important uh, category for, for, for the classical political uh, economists. 
and Marx himself is going to get, get into this in very big, uh, uh, very big uh, way. Uh, and he, he here, um, from 641 onwards, is beginning to get into uh, the whole kind of question of uh, fixed uh, and, and uh, circulating uh, carrier, uh, fixed and circulating cap, uh, capital. Now, um, there are some uh, uh, beginning points here which I need want to to to, to maybe just 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 mention uh, because uh, the question of fixed capital and the circulation of fixed capital takes us onto a completely different terrain. Uh, and that this different terrain comes largely from the fact that fixed capital doesn't circulate in a material way. And fixed capital uh, has a very peculiar relationship uh, to the production process in general. Um, and I guess the simplest way to look at this is to think about uh, a large machine in a factory and the, the large machine is being used as a means of production uh, but the machine is not itself consumed in the production process and there's a big difference between cotton uh, going into a cotton factory and coming out as a cotton cloth or a shirt or whatever there's a big difference between that and uh, the machine uh, which is which is in there, a sewing machine, say. There's a big difference between the two. The sewing machine does not end up as a shirt. Uh, the sewing machine does not materially actually get transferred into the shirt, whereas the cotton gets transferred into the shirt. So there's a, there's a big difference, therefore, between the way in which the material activity of the machine is, is going to exist. The machine... There. So, so first off, it does not end up in uh, the, the final product. It is not incorporated into the final product. Uh, the second point about the machine is that it, is, it typically will last more than one turnover cycle. Uh, turnover cycle, let's suppose it's a year, but you have a machine that, that, that can work for 10 or 15 years. Uh, and that machine then becomes, uh, remains in the power of uh, uh, the capitalist and others, continues to be owned by the capitalist for 15 years. And the big issue is, well, how is the value of the machine transferred into the product? Uh, and uh, there's no easy solution to that. It's, it's not materially there. I mean, you can take the cotton and say, uh, all right, the, the value of the cotton is this and the value of the cotton ends up in the shirt and so you can actually do a, a kind of calculation of how the value of the cotton gets recreated in the shirt and so the shirt incorporates the value of the cotton. How does the shirt incorporate the value of the machine? Uh, it doesn't do so by bits of the machine flowing into the shirt each year uh, because the machine remains the machine it remains the machine. It's a means of production and if it lasts 10 or 15 years, it presumably has the same capacity at the end of 10 years as it does earlier, though there may be some, maybe some shift. Uh, but then the machine itself, we've got a problem of how 
the value transfers. And so Marx kind of says, well, we end up with, in a sense, a fiction. And the fiction is that a certain, the value of the machine uh, is actually transferred into the value of the product, even though there is no material transfer. And then you kind of say, well, how much of the value of the machine is transferred into the product? And the easiest thing to do is to say, well, there's a depreciation process uh, in, in which the value of the machine over 10 years, one-tenth of the value of the machine ends up in all of those shirts which you produced over that, over that year. Uh, so the, the, there's an accounting procedure. Well, it turns out it's not only machines which are like this, but there are other elements of the production process which are like machines but do not have the character of staying inside of the production process for 10, 15 years. Uh, they are consumed immediately, but they also have a value transfer, which is nothing to do with a physical value. For example, energy. The energy is not transferred into the cotton, into the shirt, uh, but the energy is used up in making the shirt, and therefore the value of the energy during the year will take be spread over all of the shirts you've made during a year. So the raw materials of this kind uh, which, which are, which are sig significant. Uh, so uh, Marx will talk about them, but as analogous to fixed capital. But the big problem is the fixed capital, uh, because the value of the machine uh, is whatever the value was of, uh, incorporated in the making of the machine, and one-tenth of that value is going to go into a machine, provided you know what the lifetime of the machine is. And what is the lifetime of the machine? Well, could be 10 years, could be 15 years, could be 10 years, 20 years, you know, 30 years. Who, who, who knows? There are still machines being used from the 19th century. Um, how do, how, you know, so how do, how, how do we actually create this fiction then of a value flow uh, actually involved in a production process? Uh, and this, this comes out when Marx starts to look at the way in which fixed capital is set up. The fixed capital, he says, is, 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 is consumed slowly. And he's quoting people here. Circulating capital consists of labor, uh, seeds, raw material, and the workers' consumption. But this is what's involved here. The fixed, fixed capital is itself only circulating capital, which is assumed a stationary form, fixated circulating capital. Second, the destination. The one destined to be consumed as means of production, the other as product, or the different mode of consumption, determined by its role among the conditions of production in the production process. Chabouliez, this is on the middle of 648, simplifies the matter to the point where circulating capital is the consumable, fixed capital, the not consumable part of capital. One you can eat, the other not. Okay, so you can eat, eat a sandwich, but you can't eat the machine that slices the, the, the ham or whatever. So, so this is a beginning point then for this analysis of, uh, of uh, fixed capital in which uh, the fixed capital is not set free. It doesn't freely move. Uh, so it's fixed and, uh, and, 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 and remains within the ownership of the, the, the capitalist uh, throughout the lifetime of the machine and has this very peculiar way of uh, circulating its value. Uh, 
And to the degree that capital increasingly involves fixed capital formation, uh, we find uh, ourselves uh, moving into a kind of society where the circulation of fixed capital uh, starts to become a very big issue uh, and increasingly a dominant issue, even to the point of affecting uh, value, value structures. Um, so the, the, mach the machine technology and the arrival of machine technology uh, is going to have a very big uh, impact. Um, but part of that uh, process, uh, which I need to look at just very briefly, uh, is, is something that where Marx starts to talk about uh, uh, the role of competition again. And we mentioned this last time, and I, I therefore think because part of machine technology and the application of machine technology is going to be enforced uh, by competition between producers. That if I have a superior machine, I can drive you out of business unless you adopt a, uh, a similar machine or get yourself an even more superior machine, which will allow you to drive me out of business. So the competition starts to become very important in terms of uh, machine technology and the development of new machines. And to the degree that machine technology starts to become much more significant, it's going to be mean that the circulation, the form of circulation of fixed capital is going to become more and more dominant in the uh, society that we're, we're looking at. Um, and this competition is uh, discussed, uh, free competition is discussed uh, on 650 and 651, and I want to pay a little bit of attention to it as a precursor uh, to looking at the machine technology itself. Um, he, t he says this, uh, middle of 650, he kind of says, uh, uh, competition is very far from having only this historic significance, that is, the driving out of you know, old uh, tech technologies. It's very far from having, the, or, or merely being this negative force, that it is a destructive force. Free competition is the relation of capital to itself as another capital, the real conduct of capital as capital. The inner laws of capital which appear merely as tendencies in the preliminary historic stages of development, are for the first time posited as laws. Production founded on capital for the first time posits itself in the forms adequate to it only insofar as and to the extent that free competition develops. For it is the free development of the mode of production founded on capital, the free development of its conditions and of itself as a process which constantly reproduces these conditions. It is not individuals who are set free by free competition. It is rather capital which is set free. And we've talked a little bit about freedom, uh, individual freedom and liberty and so on uh, being implicit in exchange and that's individuals. But now we're talking about a different kind of freedom which is the freedom uh, which is, uh, arises uh, for capital which is set free to compete uh, freely against uh, rivals. Free competition, he says at the bottom of 650, is the real development of capital. 
by its means, what corresponds to the nature of capital is posited as an external necessity for the individual capital. What corresponds to the concept of capital is posited as external necessity for the mode of production founded on capital. The reciprocal compulsion, that's this kind of reciprocal compulsion of adopting the right technology and so on, the reciprocal compulsion which the capitals within it practice upon one another, on labor, etc. The competition among workers is only another form of the competition among capitals. This is the free, at the same time, the real development of wealth as capital. So much is this the case that the most profound economic thinkers, such as Ricardo, presuppose the absolute predominance of free competition. Now, part of the utopian schema of classical political economy was to create a society of free competition. And it was seen as the realm of uh, freedom uh, and liberty, and, and, and therefore was foundational to what uh, a utopian uh, capitalist social order would be about. The further it developed, he said, the purer the forms in which its motion appeared. What Ricardo has therefore admitted, despite himself, is the historic nature of capital and the limited character of free competition, which is just the free movement of capitals and nothing else. And, and he then goes on to say, uh, towards the bottom of 651, as long as capital is weak, it still itself relies on the crutches of past modes of production or of those which will pass with its rise. As soon as it feels strong, it throws away the crutches and moves in accordance with its own laws. As soon as it begins to sense itself and become conscious of itself as a barrier to development, it seeks refuge in forms which, by restricting free competition, seem to make the rule of capital more perfect or are, but are at the same time the heralds of this dissolution and of the dissolution of the mode of production resting on it. In a, in a sense, you know, capitalists, uh, the capitalist system is always lording competition. Uh, but the capitalists themselves don't like competition. They try to do everything in their power to avoid competition. And there are various historic times where Capitalists collectively complain about something called ruinous competition. And ruinous competition is something that should be regulated by the state. If the state can't do it, then capital itself will do it by adopting monopoly forms. So it's interesting that the, the final result of competition within the capitalist dynamic is inevitably some kind of monopoly. Uh, to the degree that competition is about the survival of the fittest, when the fittest finally survives, there's only one left, and so you get monopoly arising out of competition. And Marx goes on to say that this is actually the dissolution of the mode of production resting on competition. There's always that kind of tendency. Competition, he goes on to say, merely expresses a real, as real, posits as an external necessity, that which lies within the nature of capital. Competition is nothing more than the way in which the many capitals force the inherent determinants of capital upon one another and upon themselves. Hence, not a single category of the bourgeois economy, not even the most basic, e.g. the determination of value, becomes real through free competition alone, through the real process of capital, which appears as the intersection of capitals and of all other relations of production and intercourse determined by capital. 
Hence, he says, the insipidity of the view that free competition is the ultimate development of human freedom and that the negation of free competition equals negation of individual freedom. That's, that's the right-wing view, right? That's the Hayek view. That's the, the, the rest of that. The negation of free competition is the negation of individual freedom. And he's saying this is a crazy kind of view that you would expect from, uh, from certain quarters of capital. Um, that uh, the negation of free competition, in their, in their view, equals the negation of individual freedom and of social production founded on individual freedom. Uh, and he's kind of saying the kind of individual freedom is therefore at the same time the most complete suspension of all individual freedom. That is, the world of individual freedom the capital devises is one in which we get this, you know, wage slavery and debt peonage and all the rest of it. So the kind of this kind of individual freedom is at the same time the most complete suspension of all individual freedom and the most complete subjugation of individuality under social conditions which is assume the form of objective powers, even of overpowering objects, of things independent of the relations among individuals themselves. The analysis of what free competition really is, is the only rational reply to the middle-class prophets who lord it to the skies, or to the socialists who damn it to hell. The statement that within free competition, the individuals in following purely their private interests realize the communal or rather the general interest means nothing other than that they collide with one another under the conditions of capitalist production. And hence the impact between them is itself nothing more than the recreation of the conditions under which this interaction takes place. That is, uh, the, the free competition uh, leads you to a point of in which what, what, what do you freely do? You, you actually end up reproducing the class relation between capital and labor. That's what, that's what you end up doing. By the way, when the illusion about competition as the so-called absolute form of free individuality vanishes, this is evidence that the conditions of competition, of production founded on capital, are already felt and thought of as barriers, and hence already are such, and more and more become such. The assertion that free competition equals the ultimate form of the development of the forces of production and hence of human freedom means nothing other than that the middle class rule is the culmination of world history. I wish uh, Fukuyama, when he wrote the end of history essay, had actually quoted this line. I think it would have been a great line to quote, uh, that middle class rule is the culmination of world history. And that middle class rule is, of course, class rule. But it's interesting he uses middle class rule I think what he's really doing here is to suggest that the bourgeoisie is the middle class and, of course, the upper class is the aristocratic uh, orders. Uh, so this discussion of competition is, I think, a very imp important uh, feature of this, uh, of this argument. Now, what we've done so far is to go over the kind of question of circulation seeing that circulation is part of capital, seeing that different aspects of circulation create certain kind of problems, including fixation and so on. And this leaves us with um, the whole kind of question of uh, fixed capital, which uh, we start to get into 
uh, has been introduced a little bit uh, time by time. Uh, and But I think at this point, I'm probably gonna, gonna stop the, and, and move towards uh, uh, the discussion, even though we've not actually dealt with uh, the, the the question of fixed capital in the way I would want to do so because uh, but that that can be actually taken up next week because we, we have an extra week uh, and and I, I think that we can uh, deal with the fixed capital question uh, more more seriously uh, uh, next week um, the only other thing that I would uh, uh, mention here uh, is uh, uh, I mentioned the, the, the discussion of Malthus. Uh, of course, Marx is uh, very critical of Malthus. He doesn't uh, like at all the way in which Malthus uh, is uh, explaining the poverty of the masses uh, as uh, coming out of natural uh, processes. As far as Marx is concerned, the poverty of the masses uh, is, as he describes it in volume one, is very much the product of uh, wage labor and the wage labor system. Uh, and uh, as he's emphasized here, the impoverishment of the masses is a condition of, uh, of uh, wage labor. Um, so uh, that's, I think what I'm gonna uh, do is to, leave, is, to, is to leave off here and then kind of say, uh, next time we're going to deal with uh, the whole kind of question of fixed capital. Uh, because this is a, and this starts on on page 680, and, and goes through into the next section, which is um, up to I would say uh, uh, something. Um, I, I think we need to go up to to page 711. So next time, a very close reading of 680 uh, to 711. Uh, would be uh, would be very uh, useful. Uh, I should warn you, or not warn you, but encourage you. Uh, this these passages on fixed capital and the general the, the general intellect and so on are probably the highlight and the high point of uh, this uh, uh, of the Grundrisse. And, and there's some remarkable writing here, some absolutely really remarkable insights about the nature of Marx sees it of capital. And there's a great deal of debate and discussion about how to interpret uh, uh, this, these passages from around 680 to 711. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, and I think that it will actually, um, you know, and, and it's a lot of it is very beautifully written, uh, and 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 is quite quite startling in its implications, and has massive implications, I think, for understanding where we're at now in terms of the dynamics of a capitalist uh, mode of uh, of uh, production. So we'll take up the whole kind of question of fixed capital next time, uh, starting on uh, six eighty, and going to seven eleven, um, and and this will, I think. Uh, uh, and like I say, this is the high. This is the real high point of uh, of what uh, Grundrisse is about. It's, it's 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 some of the more brilliant uh, insights and brilliant prose that you. You've, at least I think so. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see what uh, you think. But let me 
let me stop here and uh, see what kinds of questions uh, people might have over the materials we've uh, covered uh, so far. If you have, if you have read ahead, which I hope you have, uh, into uh, the fixed capital, and you have questions about that, please reserve them uh, for for next uh, for next time. Okay, so let me let me ask if uh, we can uh, uh, have any any questions and any discussions. Uh, I just got unmuted. Hey, Professor Harvey, how are you doing? Hello, hi. Um, I've got a question about circulations or capital's tendency to reduce circulation to zero. And if there's a relation between the kind of hyper-financialization of the economy that we see in the modern period and this desire, because thinking of it as being born out of, or credit as something of a lubrication to reduce the circulation time, uh, I can't help but kind of, and, and that this necessarily doesn't really create value. I can't help but kind of see some sort of connection between that and financialization, but would love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, one of the things that, that happens, I think, is that um, if, you, if you can reduce circulation time to zero, it means you've got a, you know, your turnover time has also been reduced. Mm -hmm. Turnover time is made up of, you know, production plus circulation time, uh, then turnover time can be reduced by circulation time being reduced to zero. And if turnover time is reduced to cut in half, say, or whatever, uh, then that means you can get twice as much mass of surplus value uh, out of your production activity because you've got instantaneous, uh, an instantaneous market. And I think uh, one of the things that We've, we've been seeing, and I think the example you, you, you choose of, uh, uh, of the, what's going on in, in financial systems uh, is exactly about that, that the turnover time is, 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 is reduced and, and therefore you get an instantaneous uh, circulation process. But of course, you're talking about the circulation of, of credit monies now and, and all that's involved in that. A simpler version of, of what we're talking about is the reduction of uh, consumption time uh, and uh, marketing time to something which is close uh, to zero. And my, my example of this would be, uh, you know, the Netflix production, uh, where a lot of value is uh, actually taken up in the production of a Netflix series, but the marketing of it is, you know, uh, episode 10 is uh, tonight and it's between nine and 10 and it's then instantaneous consumption of a mass of people or maybe a million people watch an ep episode of Game, Game of Thrones or whatever it is uh, and, and this instantaneous consumption. Uh, and, and what that does is it clears the way so that the barriers to consumption uh, are, are no, long, no longer as significant than they are when you are producing tangible things which last a long time. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm often fond, and you've probably heard me say this before, I still, I still use my grandmother's forks, which and knives and forks, which, which were, were come out about 1890. Now, if the consumption time and the turnover time of uh, selling knives and forks uh, is anything to go by, then capital would have had a hard time finding a market. Uh, whereas uh, if it's marketing, uh, you know, a Netflix production to me, it's uh, the, the consumption the circulation time is very, very short. Uh, and, and therefore, therefore, there can be all of this, this, you know, consumerism can go on. And I think it's interesting uh, 
that so much of the consumption which is going on in our contemporary society is experiential rather than things. We, we consume experiences, we international tourism, we uh, include you know, sports events, uh, Netflix shows, uh, whatever, you know. I mean, in other words, circulation time is not exactly zero, but you can see why the impulse to, to, to reduce circulation time becomes very important to actually defining a way of life so that our mode of consumption has become very much more instantaneous because you know, capital accumulation needs new vehicles uh, to, to, uh, to accelerate the circulation of capital and you can get, get, get things back by, 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 by this, this, this sort of processes Marx is talking about. Um, but indeed you'll find you know, the, 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 the new technologies in finance which have become very, very significant since the 1980s onwards are very much about speeding up everything and, and accelerating turnover times. Uh, of uh, and you know, but there are special things involved in 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 the financial services which are make them rather different uh, than uh, say the production of ordinary goods and services. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Hi, Professor Harvey. Um, uh, I hope you're doing well. And uh, I'm now in Long Island, um, my tree here. Uh, so I was wondering whether uh, product differentiation, as in when you are making the product, you have the market in your mind. And in media, product differentiation approaches infinity. You know, in the sense that each product has to be different. So doesn't that doesn't it mean that circulation is inbuilt in the production process, that this dichotomy between product production and circulation uh, uh, disappears because it is incorporated in uh, production? Well, I, you know, there's a, an interesting kind of question about product uh, differentiation. And uh, you're right that one of the things that capitalists try to do is to avoid competition uh, through product uh, differentiation. Uh, and you take something like uh, shampoos or toothpastes or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. You, know, you sometimes look at the shelf and you think, well, there's an infinite variety of, uh, of shampoos to choose from. And each one is supposed to have some special quality and all this of it, but I, I think there are limits to the way in which product differentiation can achieve that, that particular end. And if, as, as indeed happens, you have some product differentiation which kind of says that this shampoo is so brilliant and does all these wonderful things, and you manage to persuade everybody that uh, this is such a brilliant shampoo that they're willing to pay, I don't know, $20 for a, a little bit of it, uh, uh, well, Good luck, you know. I, 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 but there's a there's there's a limit. Uh, it seems to me to about product differentiation in terms of uh, shampoos or toothpastes. Uh, even even as you're you're right. I mean, when I kind of said that, that that capitalists don't like competition, one of the things they're trying to do is to 
differentiate their product and to say my product is not competitive with others because it is so special. And, and of course, uh, people trade on that product differentiation. So uh, a Nike shoe is a Nike shoe and therefore will, will cost twice as much as a, a similar shoe, which doesn't have the swoosh on it. Um, but uh, again, there's a, there's a limit to how far you can push uh, the reputational value to add to, if you like, the, 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 the labor value. And to the degree that uh, people pay above the, 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 the labor value because of the reputation, uh, so there is less purchasing power for something else. So the, when you net it all out, uh, you, you find that uh, a lot of the product differentiation, which indeed uh, individual capitalists are, are constantly pursuing, uh, and I think it's a very, very good example of the, of what we're talking about of uh, capitalists trying to get out of competition and, uh, and the effects of competition by, uh, by, by product differentiation. But I don't think it, they're they're quite infinite, and I don't think there's an infinite capacity to charge whatever you like. I mean, maybe there's a mm-hmm. shampoo somewhere which is, uh, which is uh, marketing for a thousand dollars for a vial or something like that. Maybe there's one. But there ain't going to be many takers for, for, for that. There are you know, there are things that occur within a within a range. Right. Thank you. I think that's it for the questions. Okay. If that's it for the questions, then what what we will do is we'll uh, close it down now. And uh, I think that uh, uh, we'll take up the fixed capital and. Uh, everything that's involved with that, which for next next time, and it's a much shorter reading. And I hope that you'll all do a very concentrated reading of this part because it's a very critical part of the Grundrisse, uh, and it's like I say, it's uh, uh, it's it, it's pretty dynamite, pretty mind blowing, and there's a lot of interesting questions about how to interpret it. Uh, so uh, try and figure out your own uh, interpretations if you can. Okay, so thanks very much, and I hope that. In this crazy world, you're managing to survive well. I'm doing okay, <laughs> isolated here, and uh, you know, doing my own cooking, and you know, and looking out the window and watching the world go by. Uh, but uh, reading the Grundrisse as well. So thanks very much, and uh, good luck.